Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Romans as we continue a series of messages based upon this glorious book of Romans. And we are in chapter 6, and we're going to have the exact same passage we had last week as we continue to understand the nature of our salvation and our Savior. And with that said, I will begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 6, and uh, we'll read verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, as we open up your book this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts. We pray for the Holy Spirit to work with the word in us and that you would begin that uh, or continue that work of sanctification, of delivering us more and more from the power of sin and conforming us more and more to the image of Christ by your Spirit from one degree of glory to another. We do pray that uh, because we have been here today, we would see Jesus and him only. And because we have seen him, we'll never be the same. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we are making our way through Romans chapter 6, we looked very carefully last week at the opening question that Paul asked. It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't expect anybody out there reading this letter or hearing it read to say anything back. But what he's saying is it is utterly ridiculous if you think the grace of God demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ cannot deliver you from the power of sin. In other words, Christ did not come to forgive your sin and to tell you to go on and enjoy sinning for as long as you want because it doesn't matter. The very same act that sets you into a relationship with Jesus, being justified by faith alone, through grace alone, on account of Christ alone, also sets into motion not simply something outside of us where we are declared to be under the favor of God, right with him forever, but at the very same time, there is a work inside of us that begins, and that work is the fruit of regeneration. It is the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in us where he begins to change us inside out. 
Now today, as we continue thinking about this, last week we looked a lot at what was called the antinomian heresy, that people in Paul's original audience believed that somehow the law of God could save us and deliver us from sin. By the way, that's never been the purpose of the law of God. The purpose of the law of God has always been to show us our sin, to drive us to Christ. It is not a means and method by which, through our obedience, we achieve a level of righteousness to where God says, enough for me, I'll make up the difference. No. It requires perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, personal, perpetual, perfect obedience to God's requirement. None of us can do that. We're out at the start. We're done. But what he's going to say to us is that because we have been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, we are baptized into Christ, we are united with him, and the act or sacrament of baptism is a picture or a sign and seal of that reality. Since that's occurred to us, then certain things follow. And today we're going to start talking about chapter 6 in terms of understanding the, the distinction between what is called the indicative and the imperative. The indicatives in the Bible are what Christ has done for us. The imperatives are what we do in response to what Christ has done for us. And so many churches... Preach only imperatives. You know, the preacher's a real nag. He's always pointing out your sin. He's always telling you you don't do enough, you don't pray enough, you don't love enough, you don't witness enough, you don't give enough. I could stop on that one, couldn't I? <laughs> you, you don't sacrifice enough. You're not intense enough. You're not deliberate enough. And you hear it over and over again and over and over again to where you become numb to it. You're cajoled constantly with imperatives. The way the Bible does it is it first of all tells you something like you are dead to sin now because of that reality, because of that truth. Here's how you are to live. Sometimes the indicatives swallow up the imperatives and you end up with an antinomian. Other times the imperatives swallow up the indicatives and you end up with the legalist. Both are ugly. By the way, let me tell you a little dirty secret. Some people like to call me an antinomian and have in the past and whatever. And generally, depends on who's saying it, I'll jump up and down and say, so go, thank you very much. Because you're nothing but a raging legalist. But at the same time, our flesh, which we're not talking about today, the sinful nature, which is coming up in Romans 7, our flesh is both addicted to legalism and antinomianism. Every time you sin, you're committing an antinomian act. Have you sinned today? You might be doing it right now. Then you have committed an antinomian act, or you've committed a legalistic act. So let's clear the deck on that and try to understand three things from this text as we continue uh, understanding Romans 6, which to me is so strategic and key uh, to justification. It was no less 
a powerful and esteemed person as John Calvin who said, once we are united to Christ, we are united to the whole Christ. Christ is not only our justifier by accomplishing for us what we could never do for ourselves, but Christ is also our sanctifier. At the very same time you are declared forever to be under his favor and right with God, he begins the process of changing us inside out, our character, changing our morality, changing everything about us in this process of sanctification. So with that said, let's move forward into our text because there is much here for us all. Let's get right into the exposition of the text. We are those who this text proclaims with dogmatism, as it were, those who have died to sin. And the significance of that expression, dying to sin, has been much discussed. I take it to mean something like died to the reign or rulership of sin, to the dominion of sin, to the authority of sin, to the rule of sin. That is, once we are united to Christ, we experience the reality in our being of being dead to sin. Paul has, helps us to grasp the implications by spelling out in detail what we know about ourselves as those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus and have died to sin. There are uh, at least four things I want to say about that right quick. Number one, the fact is our old self, whatever that is, was crucified with him, that is Christ. The, uh, the God, or excuse me, the end in view is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. He's going to tell us that. Then he tells us the result is we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And the reason for our new freedom is the one who has died has been set free from sin. And so that is the essence and the structure of what we're going to consider this morning. These are critical statements yet they have challenged interpreters largely because Paul does not use this kind of language or this kind of wording elsewhere in his letters. So what do these statements mean that you have printed for you in the bulletin? And what do they imply for us in our daily life? From uh, one point of view, we could omit any discussion of these nuances of interpretation. After all, we do that often enough in reading the Bible. Some things we leave to the experts. But there is an important reason for giving patient consideration to this passage. And that is, um, these words are of major importance in determining the way we think about ourselves as Christians. In other words, they have a lot to do to define our new identity in Jesus Christ. They contribute significantly to what many have called in recent times the concept of self-image. True, the pursuit of self-image can be in an idolatrous quest 
and uh, bring bondage to us all its own, but part of the beauty of self-image can be uh, to us, the gospel gives us, is that it delivers us from uh, narcissism and from seeing self as the central project of our lives. Now, it's so hard to get outside of yourself and look at yourself, but let's face it. Luther said it years ago. We are all, because of the power of sin, curved in upon ourselves. We're selfish. We're self-centered. We have fat, relentless egos. I said we. And that's the truth. That's the power of sin in our lives. We're self-absorbed. And the power of the gospel is the only power, Luther says, that can get us curved, uh, to get us curved out from ourselves to love other people. How much do you think about other people? How much do you allow yourself to see the needs of others around you and respond to them? Or do you sit around in your self-absorption? Uh, is everything about you? Is the whole world revolving around you? Are you the center of your universe? Then you need a Copernican revolution. Self needs to be expelled. Christ needs to be enthroned. And now you have the power to do it. That's what Paul is saying. You have the power. You've never had this power before, but once you become a Christian, a new set of realities occur to you. You have died to sin. And so I want us to understand that. I know I keep saying that, but we're going to understand it together in a minute. So with that said, track Paul's words. We know that the old self was crucified with him. Literally, Paul says in the original language, the old man. I only called my daddy the old man one time. After I got up off the floor, I realized it's not a good idea. Don't call your father your old man. It's disrespectful. But Paul here doesn't, he's not talking about that. He's saying that in reality the old man was crucified with him, that is Christ. While this is often taken to refer to Paul's life as Saul of Tarsus before his Damascus Road experience, it has a much larger framework of reference. In the immediately preceding section in Romans chapter 5, Paul set our lives in a much bigger and larger context. By nature, we were in Adam. But now we are in Christ. In Adam, we were under the dominion of sin and death. In Christ, we are in the dominion of grace and life. Sin once reigned, but now grace reigns, and grace has the power to deliver us from sin. The old man in view here, therefore, is simply my former self, uh, whatever I was as a non-Christian, but that person I was in Adam and not simply in myself. When I was united to Jesus Christ, I was transferred from Adam world and Adam land into Christ world and Christ land. I live under a new sphere of existence. My federal head is a result of faith in Christ. It's Jesus himself. And that's happened to me. There has been a transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. 
So we have been uh, moved from one kingdom to the other by the power of God. Um, by God's grace, my past was forgiven, but there's more to it than that. I died out of an entire world order, the Adamic order, and was thus delivered from a fallen and condemned race under sin's reign through union with Christ who died to sin and was raised to new life. That has happened. It's the truth. It's reality. Now, some of us never even knew that happened. But not knowing it hadn't happened doesn't mean it's not true. It has happened. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, he tells us. Here Paul uses a verb, brought to nothing, katargeo, that expresses the idea of rendering something inoperable or barren or of no effect, no longer able to exercise the authority and power it once had. The same verb is used by the author of Hebrews when he says that Christ came to destroy the one who has the power of death. It suggests not annihilation, but rather disabling. And so Christ, in his work on the cross, has disabled the utter dominion and power of sin over us. We do not have to sin because we've been delivered from its power. That has already happened. But what is the body of sin that is brought to nothing? Commentators, of course, have differed over this concept and spilled a lot of ink, killed a lot of trees, stating their opinion. <laughs> but uh, my take on it is that we will see later on in Romans uh, that Paul gives us a key to the meaning uh, when he uses a similar expression, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul does not mean he wants to escape bodily existence. He did not share the view of Greek philosophers who felt that everything material, everything physical was inferior and evil and that the human body is the prison house of the soul, and that the greatest thing that can ever happen to you, according to Platonist and Neoplatonist and others, would die, be to die and have your soul separated from your body, therefore you would be living on a higher plane. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is not a Neoplatonist. He doesn't believe that. But what he does believe is that uh, it might be stretching the point that he had in mind uh, some of the grotesque punishments. I read about this this week, and I wanted to kind of share it with you. Uh, Paul did not mean that he wants to escape bodily existence. He did not share the view of the Greek philosophers summed up in the adage, soma, sima, the body is a tomb, and it's probably stretching a point to think that he had in mind the grotesque punishment employed in antiquity in which a murderer would be tied face to face with the corpse of his victim. Rather, Paul is probably thinking here of his physical body as one which exists under the reign of death. 
He does not desire a non-bodily existence, but he does long to be free from a bodily existence that is subject to death. And he knows Christ will one day set him free. One of the reasons as you grow older, this becomes a reality to you because the body doesn't function as well as it used to. And you look in the mirror and say to yourself, who is that looking at me? This is not the image I walk around with in my head all the time of what I look like. So we all long in some sense to be delivered from this body of death. But in a parallel way, Paul speaks about the body of sin. He's probably thinking of his physical body himself viewed from the physical point of view. Sin once exercised total dominion over his body. It was in this sense, the body of sin, sin exercised its rule through his mortal body, but now united to Christ, that dominion has been broken. Grace now reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life. As a bodily individual, he has been set free from his old ethnicity and brought into the kingdom in which Christ now reigns. His body no longer the fertile soil for the weeds of sin to grow as it once was. So we're beginning to try and grasp and understand some of the concepts Paul is using here in Romans 6. And the reason why... I believe we live so far beneath the privileges we have in Christ is nobody has taken time to explain to us something about what Romans 6 is saying. I can remember growing up in church and we got to Romans 6. My Sunday school teacher looked at me and said, who in the world knows what he's talking about here? So let's move on to chapter 7. Just like they tell us Romans 9 through 11 was for the Jews, that had nothing to do with us. And I... That's wrong, by the way, dead wrong, but that's what I was taught. Now, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Yes, sin continues to indwell us, but it's not a blowout, okay? Sin continues to indwell us, but it's not a blowout. Yes, we battle against its influence, but it no longer reigns over us. It no longer has a legitimate nor legal claim on us. For in Christ we have died to the realm in which sin reigned. We are no longer the citizens of the sin. Later on I will tell you that most in the Greek text here, most of the time he uses the word sin, he uses a definite article before the word sin, harmatia. And the definite article means the sin and Paul is personifying, as it were, sin in this text. So the sin no longer has absolute power over you. So um, we have been transferred into a new realm in which sin reigned. We are no longer sin's citizen. A few years ago, I remember a South Korean golfer by the name of Bai Sang Moon. In 2016, he had won two PGA events, and he looked like this kid is going to tear it up. He's got all the ability in the world. He's going to win majors. He's got everything to go except the South Korean nation and army said, you got to come 
be conscripted into the army in South Korea. You got to serve your time. All he had to do was become an American citizen. And if he had been an American citizen, South Korea couldn't have demanded he leave the PGA Tour and do his time in the Army. But he didn't, so he had to go, because that was the realm, that was the rule under which he lived as a citizen. He had to obey that commandment and leave a promising, lucrative career in uh, uh, the United States playing on the PGA to go dwell in the Army in South Korea. Now, I don't know what that would be like, but I know what it would be like to lose a lucrative career. That would be astounding. And so, in some respects, that illustration is like what has happened to us. We, ourselves, are free from the old authority because we are living under a new regime. And that is surely what Paul has in view here. Now, let me do a little bit about what Paul is not saying when he says we died to sin. Because I can feel some of you getting a little nervous. Because you said, Pastor Tim, if you said I've died to sin, I don't know about you, but I know about me. And I'm struggling with it. I mean, I've never been so aware of my sin as I am now. Good. That's the first step. <laughs> you know, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. No, but, but the gospel tells you you're a lot more love than you'd ever dare hope or dream. But the reality is, no, it doesn't mean that we no longer sin. Let me try to qualify this with some biblical reality. First of all, he's not saying that we no longer experience the influence and impact of our past life as though we had never been in union with Adam. He is not saying that sin's presence has been eradicated in our lives as though Christians were already perfect. I had a friend who pastored a church, and he had in this church a charismatic woman, and she was uh, one of those who believed that you could rise above any knowledge of sin and, and move into perfection, and she told her pastor, I have not sinned in seven years. And her pastor looked at her and said, you must be proud of that. She said, yes, I am. <laughs> if it had been me, I would have said, bingo, it's over. <laughs> we know that you, you don't have sinless perfection. So sin is still a reality that we deal with. He's saying that we're no longer citizens of the kingdom in which sin is reigning. We are no longer uh, in slavery to it or its subjects. We have become citizens of the kingdom of Christ in which grace reigns. He summarizes this in simple statements. The one who has died is freed from sin. However, this statement is not quite that simple for Paul uses language here that we associate with justification. Really interesting. Literally, it could be translated that someone who has died has been justified from sin. That's the word in the original. But because of this language, some interpreters suggest that the apostle's reasoning is as follows. 
Since you have been justified, you must not fall back into a sinful lifestyle. In other words, you have died to sin. Refers to being united to Christ in his death and for our sins. Since Christ died for our sins, we should no longer live for them. We have died to sin in the sense of being justified from sin. Therefore, we must no longer contemplate living in sin. And that is certainly true. Nothing wrong with that understanding. And it does, of course, resound with the teaching of Scripture. But it's doubtful if that's what he's saying here in this particular passage. What is Paul's meaning? What is he saying? Suffice it to say here that our standard translations, most which translate freed rather than justified, seem to assume in keeping with the context the meaning is freed from the reign or dominion of sin. This translation is sub substantiated by a number of elements in the context. Context is always important. Context, if you take something out of context, you've only established a pretext to say whatever you want it to mean. Be careful about listening to people preach the Bible who take verses out of its original context. Because you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Believe me, you can do it. I hear people do it all the time. That's why context is so important. And so the context of Romans 6 is not the context of justification, but rather the context of sanctification. Paul appears to emphasize the notion of sin as dominion by a series of personifications. It reigns as king, dominates like a slave master, deploys the members of our bodies as if it was a military general, using them as weapons and as an employer that pays the wages of death. Although it is not obvious in our translations and would be difficult to represent in uh, literary uh, English, Paul regularly uses the definite article, said this a minute ago, before the word sin throughout the whole section of Romans. It virtually becomes a title, the sin. The term proliferates as if to impress on the reader or hearer that sin is being personified here and is viewed in terms of its dominion and not, as elsewhere, as sins in the plural in terms of its guilt. So what does all that mean? As it, we underline this point, Paul later states quite specifically that believers have been set free from sin in the sense of being delivered from its bondage. Plus, despite the views to the contrary, it is in this sense that Paul claims Christ died not only for sins, but also to sin. Christ died to sin's reign and has now been raised up to live in newness of life to God. We are united to him. Therefore, we have died a death like his. We, too, have been raised into new life. Yes, there is a difference. And we are still in the pre-resurrection body, and we live in a pre-resurrection world, but we do so as those who have already died to sin's dominion and already been raised into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end of the ages has dawned on us. The new creation, the powers of the age to come have perforated this present time. And we have experienced the reality of the reign of Christ in an already but not yet sense. 
Already I am delivered. One day I am delivered from the power of sin. One day I will be delivered entirely from the presence of sin when I leave this body and get the new body Christ has for me. I will experience the fullness of what it means to be raised with Christ. I am raised now, spiritually reborn, resurrected from the tomb, resurrected from death. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. But I'm not totally new yet. I'm not totally resurrected yet. There's more to the story. We live already with these privileges that we have united to Christ, but we live not yet too, anticipating the fullness of our union with Christ. That's what Paul is arguing in this passage in ways that are foreign to our ears. And so in conclusion, let's go back to baptism because we talked about baptism last Sunday. Paul begins by asking the Romans, in essence, whether they understood their baptism. Do you understand the meaning of your baptism? Are you living, quote, the baptized life? Had they really heard what baptism was telling them? Perhaps we have the same problem. We can probably assume that Paul's first readers never debated the divisive issues in baptism, uh, whether subjects, converts, or converts in their children, or mode, immersion, effusion, or sprinkling. These issues, however important they may be in the war uh, of delivering us <laughs> in a way of uh, diverting us from the biblical teaching on baptism itself and what it means, our interest then tends to be in defending our denominational views. You do it wrong, we do it right. And, uh, you know, that's just enough to feed our self-righteousness and we fall into it. But rather, we need to see baptism as a sign of something more. Our trust in Christ rather than understanding it as a sign of what Christ has done in and for us. I have been in a tradition that emphasized baptism was you taking the position of testifying about your faith, <coughs> about your coming to Christ, about you choosing him, and about you living for him and standing with him rather than baptism explaining what Christ has done for you, what God has done for you in Christ, how he is delivering you uh, in your experience of death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. What is the meaning of baptism? What does it have to do with us? We focus too much, or not on what it has to say about Christ, but on what it says to others about ourselves. This is almost an epidemic among evangelical Christians. Ask them what does baptism mean, and what does faith grasp in baptism? and we are unlikely to get answers. It means fellowship with the triune God through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It reaches me that through faith I am united to Christ. Or excuse me, it teaches me that through faith I am united to Christ, that I have died to sin, that I have been buried, that I have been raised into a new life. But to the extent in which the answers are lacking, we have lost hold of baptism's power and usefulness in our lives. We do not get much beyond thinking about ourselves and our faith in uh, or decision for Christ. 
We therefore forfeit the long life blessings baptism is intended to be. And so our baptism fails to accomplish its purpose of defining our daily life in Christ. Contrasts what baptism says and the message of faith receives from it. I am no longer the person I was in Adam. I'm a new person in Christ. In Christ, I am someone who has died to the dominion of sin, and I have been raised to new life. In Christ, I am someone who has been delivered from the dominion of sin and been transferred into the kingdom of God. This is foundation to Paul's logic. He now develops. Know your new identity, and it will determine how you live. Just as hearing the name your parents gave you causes you to respond in a deep-seated and instinctive way, Paul tells us that we can reckon on it. It is true. So think about yourself as someone who has died to sin but has been raised to new life in Christ. Reject the efforts of King's sin to re reign again. Refuse to give yourself to King's sin's control, but give yourself to righteousness. Realize that the dominion of sin is broken. It has lost its right to exercise dominion over you ever again. Now, I know that in preaching this message, I am telling you what the Bible says in Romans 7, which is truth, and it may not be something you experience. You're sitting here going, I don't know, Pastor Tim. You're saying that. You're saying it's happened to me. You grasp it by faith. You grasp it by trusting in the God who breathed out this word. And what he's telling us is true of us as to who we really are. And that shapes our understanding. It is incongruous for me as a believer in Christ to live absolutely uh, I'm thinking of the word hogtied, but that's probably not good. Uh, absolutely, uh, completely in, in the thraldom, that's a good theological word, thraldom of sin. I grew up in the South. I can't help it. Those things just come to my mind. If you've ever been hogtied, you know what I'm talking about. But sin no longer reigns over us. It no longer has power, absolute power over us. We can resist it. We can, by the power of the Spirit, overcome it. And I know that many of us either have addictions or we know people who are addicted. And Romans 6 has a lot to say about people going through that. I don't think you can ever get out from under that in a healthy way without understanding what Romans 6 is saying here in this text. We have been in reality, we are, not have been, but we are dead to the power of sin. Now, this is not all Paul's going to say about this. He will say more later, but he will tell us and encourage us over and over how this has to do with our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, John Owen once wrote that in a sense there are only two basic issues with which a minister of the gospel has to deal. 
The first presents an evangelistic challenge persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that this is the truth about them. That's very challenging to do. The other is the pastoral challenge persuading those who are no longer under sin's dominion that this is who you really are. That is the challenge. Who do you think you are? Go look at your baptism. Do you understand your baptism and what it means? Do you know who you are in Jesus Christ? That will have a long-term impact in how you live and understand the nature of Christian life. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the truth of this passage, we pray that it would get past our defenses, it would get past our prejudices and get to our heart and bring in us deep change. There's no one who needs to hear this message more than us, each one of us. We can always think of people who are in the thraldom of sin, who are destroying themselves day by day, who are in deep rebellion against God, but it's hard for us to see our own sin. But we know there is a way, biblically speaking, for us to overcome, to be delivered, as the confession says, more and more from the power of sin. We've been delivered from the guilt and the pollution of sin. We have been declared righteous. We have been cleansed. But we pray your Spirit will enable us to be delivered from the power of sin. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who have been freed from the reign of sin. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.